This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. February is dedicated as Black History Month, honoring the triumphs and struggles of African-Americans throughout U.S. history. This year's theme is Black Resistance, Building Bridges and Navigating Barriers. And my guest for today's show is a remarkable woman who is doing just that. Dr. Akila Kadeh is the founder of Change Kadeh, a consulting firm that aims to drive equity and belonging in the workplace. As a young Black woman, Dr. Akila Kadeh experienced judgment, isms, and numerous barriers in the workplace. And one day she thought, what if I could change that? And Change Kadeh was born. Akila, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me and such a wonderful introduction and a wonderful way to, to kick off Black History Month. I'm glad you think so. Um, there's a lot more to you than I could get into those two few little sentences. So do you mind if I share a little bit more about you? I will. I'm braving myself for my <laughs> accomplishments. Yes. Okay. Um, and this is not even a complete list. So um, Akila has 15, over 15 years in management and building successful projects, teams, and leaders in the public and private sectors. She's a 2021 Forbes Next 1000 honoree and honored as one of staffing industry's analysts 2021 Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Influencers. She has worked on federal, state, privately funded, multi-million dollar projects, ranging from public health and healthcare to education. She spent an extensive part of her career designing, training, coaching executives, and informing systemic, systematic change to improve the workforce experience for large organizations. And she's joining us today to talk about power, privilege, and how we all can become an accomplice. So, I left a few things out, including documentary producer and a number of other things, but we'll get there. So, <laughs> Akila, one of the things that I find so interesting about the arc of your career is you're still a relatively young person and you've had, you're in the midst of your second major career. You have a PhD in health administration. So, tell me about the journey there. What led you? to be first pursue this kind of academic way of impacting healthcare. And now you're a DEI expert and consultant. Tell me, how'd this happen? Um, to no one's surprise, racism is how it happened. <laughs> um, sexism that was in there. So um, harassment and bullying and unfair treatment in traditional nine to five spaces brought me to where I am uh, today. So um there's kind of like two monumental shifts to get to where I am. And one was getting a huge promotion from a woman of color um, who we worked together and she got a huge promotion. So then I got a huge promotion to do more work. And then one day after I got all the funding for this new department, she was like, just kidding. You're not going to get that promotion. <laughs> what? Yes. You must have been devastated. I mean, yes, but I also didn't know how to do the math of like a woman of color being hurtful to a woman of color. I experienced it for an older person, regardless of how they identify. I definitely experienced for a white person, but because we had such a nurturing relationship with how we worked together, I just, it just completely caught me off guard. And so as a result of that, um, every day going to work was like PTSD and I was finishing my doctorate because I'm, I wasn't privileged enough to like fully go into a doctoral program. So I worked full time and I did my doctoral program full time and my program is wow. four to seven years and I did it in three years because I also had to pay for it. And so if I could save an additional year or three, um, that's real money. That. Yeah, it was real money, but my life really sucked. I would like to <laughs> point that out. So it was, yeah, that it doesn't sound fun. like a recipe for like well-being, mental health. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up mental health because that's exactly what happened. So um, I graduated and the following month I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and largely in part because of the discrimination, harassment and bullying I was experiencing in my workplace, but I also experienced discrimination in my doctoral program. Um, 
I think I started at 29 or 30. So I was, I was on the younger side and racism is everywhere. Um, and so I was like, okay, cool. Great. I'm in this job that's causing major depressive disorder. Also not realizing that work is a big part of your life that never made any sense to me because I grew up with very successful parents who were always working. So I'm like, Oh, it's what you do. You like, you like work, right? This is what happens. But I didn't realize how it would affect my personal life. And so I decided to, um, on a black Friday or cyber Monday, just randomly buy a ticket to Thailand and went for two weeks. Cause I had a hard time also because of racism, finding a therapist. I literally had a therapist, a white woman tell me I need to find a black therapist because I have black problems. Mm-hmm. Even though when I explicitly sought her out because she worked in the um, at the employer that I was working with at the time. And so she would understand my culture and my environment, which I told right. her. And this is, you know, this is Dr. Akila Gade. I'm like, you know, hey, I kind of know what I'm doing here. And anyway, I went to Thailand, did the whole eat, pray, love thing um, <laughs> and came back and I was like, okay. I'm depressed, but I can get out of the situation. So um, it took some time because applying to jobs felt like homework. (laughs) It's a lot of work to hunt for a job. But I did um, eventually find another job like within six months. And I was like, oh my gosh, I did it. I, I live in Oakland, California. So I'm in the Bay Area. I had a job that was 10 minutes from my home. And because I was an executive, I had free parking. Again, these things don't happen in the Bay Area. It sounds like win, win, win. All, all around. I was finally making like the six figures I was fighting to make and top floor and views of the Bay Area. And I was like, oh my gosh, I really am like the Olivia Pope of diversity because I can wear power suits, like do all these things. I was so excited. <laughs> But that um, quickly turned into a one-on-one meeting with my boss, white male in his 60s, who looked at me and said, I didn't think you were that smart when I interviewed you, but you are smart. And I sat there also doing math, but I'm like, wait a minute. I did say that I'm a doctor and all of my applications. And did we interview- see it on your resume? It was on the resume. It was also a, a, a doctorate preferred position. So you had to have a minimum of a master's degree, but they preferred a doctorate. The person before me, whose role I replaced, also had a doctorate. And so I was like, you know, I have 15 years of experience. I'm coming from a place that's like three times the size. I actually know how to do everything. So I I, I, I thought I was hired <laughs> for my skills, you know, and accolades to align in a position. I was thrilled and apparently not. And so... When I brought that up, he was like, oh, I guess that's offensive. I'm sorry. And I was like, yeah, that's offensive and hurtful. And I'm going to have to rebuild trust with you um, as a result of that. And so the way he rebuilt trust was firing me the next week. You're kidding Mm -hmm. me. Did you tell him, did you say that point blank? I need to rebuild trust with you. Good for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because again, this is major depressive disorder, Akilah. I was no longer going to allow a nine to five space to control my feelings and emotions and make me feel less than. And so when I was fired illegally, and let's just say a lawsuit later, I was able to get any shoes I wanted. <laughs> okay. I asked myself a question. So okay, uh, within a week, decided to go down to the city of Oakland and get a business license. So Change Today started about a year uh, before I was fired. And so I was just checking out, like, are people going to pay me as a pretend doc as I was like finishing my research and stuff? And the answer was yes. <laughs> okay. So when so, you started Change Today and you were still, so you were pursuing your PhD. I was at the previous job, yeah, pursuing PhD. Just, this is why my life sucked. Pursuing PhD, decided to start a company that was like a side hustle passion project. Remember when those are really in? Yeah. Um, and I wanted to find value. So like, you know, this is, you know, coming back from Thailand, all this other stuff is happening. Right. So I'm like, I want to find value. I've always wanted my own consulting firm. Just didn't want it so soon. Cause I wanted to just do nothing. Have someone else pay for my <laughs> vacations, my like getting the money and stuff, like just to kind of like rest and just travel and then not care, but care in the right appropriate ways right. and not have to right. work so hard. And so change could started as a side hustle to to pour into myself, to find the value into myself. And honestly, to not feel like I was unstable because people liked my ideas and people wanted 
my presence to help them figure something out. And it was one of the most fulfilling things that I did. So I was like, okay, cool. So I'll still do this change today as a side hustle. I have this really cool job. So if there's like a speaking gig or a needs assessment or some type of analysis I can do or come in and facilitate for a day, I'll just do that, take a vacation day. And, and, I, and I communicated that I had this side hustle thing. So it wasn't a secret. Um, and so I asked myself one question. Okay, so... If I feel the way I feel now, looking back on my career and seeing the pattern of isms, racism, homophobia, like, or whatever the thing was coming my way, judgment, stereotypes, discrimination, being a woman, (laughs) being a black person, being a black woman. Oh no, wait, she's a smart black woman who's also pretty, somehow funny. You can't be all of these things. Like all of these things are turning into isms. So then I'm starting to think about my own barriers and other people's barriers that they may experience as disabled people, as people from the LGBT plus community. And I asked myself, what could I do to fix that? And so that's what I've been doing ever since. So Change Today, we're in places where people can feel like they belong in those nine to five spaces. Um, I have created a place for me to live outside of the box but I understand that's a privilege for me to do and other people can't do that or don't want to do that because entrepreneurship is not for everyone. <laughs> no, it is hard. Um, it's so hard. Yeah. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio and Sirius XM channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Dr. Akila Kaday. She's the founder of Change Kaday, consulting firm, James to drive equity and belonging in the workplace. So Akila, this is such an interesting story. There's so many dimensions to it, but I just want to tap into one thing first. So You, while you were working in healthcare administration and getting your PhD, um, it sounds like you also developed a host of skills that you were able to turn towards DEI and B work. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. And I actually taught workshops about that in my nine to five jobs at that time. And a lot of it was on a transferable skill set, which a lot of people don't realize. And so if someone's like, okay, all of my degrees are in health, undergrad in health science, a master's in public health, my doctorate in health science, leadership and organizational behavior. I was a public health, public practitioner, healthcare, health, everything person. But the same thing I was doing in a community or for nurses or for doctors is the same thing I could do for CEOs or a consumer. Okay. When it came down to it. And so that transferable skill set, I was just like, oh yeah, I could, I could probably tell a beauty company what to do. Because, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that we tap into today, but one of the ones that I'm most delighted about is you are this amazing role model um, for uh, many different levels. But one of them is hearing the story about how you poured your work, you did this work to pour it into yourself, to pour goodness and something fulfilling, not just because you put it out there into the world, but that it was good medicine for you. And you were able yeah. to do that by leveraging all these skills. Well, I had to realize that I wasn't the problem. And I, I think as women, as BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous people of color, we tend to be viewed as the problem. And I don't know if you know who I am, but um, I'm the angry Black woman. <laughs> I'm glad you so, let me know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's this trope that I was always in and all the things society told me to do or dominant culture or like how to survive in, in a in a country full of of white supremacy was like okay you have to be educated okay i did the education thing okay right, well i yeah check um i want you to code switch to a certain amount okay yeah i can code switch let's talk about skiing yay you know or whatever <laughs> the thing may be like i did all of these things and yet somehow i was still the problem and so it wasn't me i didn't need to fix myself and that was validated because I'm on a Forbes list, y'all. That means I'm doing something right. It's <laughs> here, the here. best, you know, like brag and flex on everyone else who tried to silence me or or keep me in a box. So I'm kind of like, take that. Um, but it was a way for me to look at the systems and the structures that say women, BIPOC, LGBT plus or disabled, whoever the non-dominant group may be in that space are less than or not worthy of feeling like they belong in the workspace. So how, I hope you don't mind me asking the personal question. Um, oh, I'm into it. Okay, good. The 
a lot of these parts of your story are overlapping and overlapping and happening somewhat concurrently and leading to one another. And you're struggling with major depressive disorder, which is also adds another dimension to the intersectional experience of your life. How was your wellness as you started to make this shift into having, into leaving these other workspaces and becoming your own employer? That's a fantastic question. Um, it's allowed me to provide a supportive space for what I need to thrive. And so um, I still have a major depressive disorder. We're besties. We hang out regularly, sometimes more intimately than other times. Um, and, and that's because I'm now disabled. So that's a fun, another thread of the story that I'm happy to get into. And I live in chronic pain. And so everything is, is harder. So I have become someone who um, dismantles white supremacy in general, <laughs> Um, lives with all of my intersectionality as a black disabled woman. Um, and I also have a major depressive disorder. And so when I started as a side hustle, I was giving myself opportunities to feel seen, validated, and heard. And that is one way, even in moments of sadness of like, oh, okay, cool. And then when you add money on top of it, it's a mm -hmm. wonderful, it's a wonderful <laughs> thing. And I think that's really important to note because coming from a public health world, it's not really focused on money, it's more people. And so it was really hard for me to say like 150 bucks an hour, like what people are going to pay. That? It was hard for you to believe that people could afford it. Or was it, was any part of it that you didn't see that you were worth that an hour? It was a combination of not necessarily knowing my actual worth because I've been conditioned to think less than, but also thinking that money goes to the, the people in the community, right? So, you know, I've worked on multi-million dollar projects, but it's to fund something in the community. Mm -hmm. It's not to, to fund me. <laughs> right. Right. So I had to change that thinking. Public health and healthcare is like the land of potlucks. That's how I'd like to explain it. You have potlucks for every <laughs> stupid thing. What's what? It's someone's birthday, a holiday. And I hate potlucks to this day because I, unless there's a theme, it doesn't make any sense. And I don't like it, but I was the moving. same thing. Cause yeah. you get like three lasagnas, four things, of chicken, someone right. does chow mein and then and like an ambrosia salad. And then they're, I don't know. The, the and designer then, in me. It's like, it doesn't make sense as a meal. It doesn't, best. but it doesn't, I also struggle with buffets and that's a whole other thing. But, um, <laughs> I like to explain my past life as, you know, it was just that whole type of life. Right. But now I was working with companies who have like white tablecloth situations going right. on, right? Where things are, we're moving from the potluck to, to catering, right? Right. <laughs> right. And so they clearly can pay me, but it was just me changing my mindset, me realizing that I, I deserve to feel valued. And so by doing that, I was able to create a culture in my own company that not only helps me thrive, but a lot of the folks who I've hired have been in situations where they haven't felt valued and appreciated. And right now we're all happen to just be really amazing women, which is great. And because I know that they have come in with perhaps a broken wing or a ding or imposter syndrome, I don't do well with any of those things. So we do the complete opposite. So we're incredibly transparent. We talk about feelings and emotions. We have unlimited vacations. Someone doesn't feel like working today. That's fine. I'm not going to force anyone to do anything. I get celebrated last week. I'm like, I think I'm going to be a soft black woman. I'm going to I'm going to take a nap today. And everyone was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Sign off. This is great. I'm so glad you're taking a nap. What environments would that be necessarily celebrated um, to have a, you know, a competitive type of company? But I've been able to accept all parts of me and celebrate all parts of me and in turn do that for my staff. And that's what helps with my overall mental health. This is and not health. the first time that I've heard this from a woman entrepreneur. I've done mm -hmm. a big study of Wharton alumni, and it was interesting to see that the entrepreneurs versus what I called the corporate citizens um, stayed working much longer, um, were less likely to leave when they had children, and even into their 70s. We're still starting companies and running things. They had a whole different quality of life because they were in the driver's seat. One of the other oh, yeah. things that I learned from them, though, is that, and these were Wharton alumni um, who went to business school. It's still um, a big challenge, conceptual and practical, to deal with the finances of running your own firm. Were those mm -hmm. that, and you're clearly, you know, smart to begin with, but those nuances, how mm -hmm. 
where did you learn those? Did those come with your public health training and you just had to shift it to your operation? Or were there some lessons, things that you had to like dig into and figure out as you were building this? I was like, what the hell is an S-corp? How is an S-corp different (laughs) from an LLC? What is happening? So, I mean, you know, wonderful search in my Google is helpful, but I'm not afraid of my areas of opportunities. So sometimes people say weakness. I know what I'm strong at. I can sell stuff. I can bring people in. I can solve problems in two seconds. I can come up with a brand. Everything, like my whole PR strategy, everything anyone has seen about me, I've done myself. I have my own PR strategy person. Um, but I also know when I'm not good at things, such as That's huge money. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I had to find a CPA who has experiences, you know, with business. I also brought in um, a contractor COO to help build out my operations um, and paid for them to come in and, and do that. My chief strategy officer right now is actually almost done with her MBA, thanks Lauren, um, that she got for us. Cause I was like, wait, you're going to have an MBA. You're probably going to want to go somewhere in MBA with the MBA thing. And she's like, I'm, <laughs> it's that change today. And I was like, Oh my God, this is ours. You're doing this for us. And so, you know, now that's a whole new skill set that's coming in. So I'm not afraid to outsource what I can't do. Um, and I'm going to say this, um, women, of any background, if you're running a business, you find yourself a white guy who's run a business or good with money, and they will tell you all of the secrets because they will indirectly make money as a result because they're the ones that have the most access to things. They don't have the same barriers for either raising capital, fundraising, how they're building their structure of their business or business plan. A lot of things come their way because that's how the system's designed. And there are a lot of great white guys out there that could help you know, um, allow you to have those same benefits so that you can continually grow. In and that process, because I've thought about this before, there are certain things like fundraising, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, um, for venture capital or because I've spent my life in higher ed, fundraising in a not-for-profit setting, um, the mystery of how you ask for money, how you build, like, that until you're in those rooms, in those relationships, watching people do it, you really don't understand the dance. It's not like dating in some ways. And it's nuanced and it's culturally dependent. And you need a mentor who's going to guide you because the first time you go on that dance floor, you're going to get tripped up. Um, Did in doing this and recognizing I'm going to like reach out to somebody really as different from me as I can find, but somebody who brings all that privilege and advantage. Mm -hmm. Did they... How did you construct the relationship so that they would mentor you, guide you, teach you what you didn't know? So any relationship I have, I set the expectation that it's going to be reciprocal. They're going to learn from me and I'm going to learn from them. Um, and as long as they're on board for that, then that's how we have a lot of opportunities for learning and learning. And I think that that really is the, the secret sauce. Um, to getting what you need. You can also do like informational interviews, which is what I did. I would talk to folks about like how they, you know, run their business and anyone who wants to run a business and they ask me how I did it, actually did it earlier today. I'm just like, okay, here are the things that you should do, (laughs) you know, right away, opposed to keeping that in because we can, it doesn't hurt me if they're able to save more money on their taxes. I'm happy to give that (laughs) gift, you know, um, to someone. So, you know, and I think it's, it's really important to um, observe set expectations, and to realize that you're going to continually make mistakes as a business owner. They're going to happen because things are always changing and you may not have access to something or you may pivot with your structure, what you have to do. And I wholeheartedly agree, like fundraising, which I haven't done. I started my company off of my retirement. <laughs> but um, when I do, I do coach and support clients with fundraising, it is a whole like dating thing. Like someone, do, do they ghost me? Oh no, right. they just lost well, something happened. Right. They thought Did they were going to get back to their them? ex and they realized they didn't want to. Now they're back with you. You know, it's like <laughs> that type of thing. And so as you're, um, and it also is interesting, you're creating an, in, uh, an inverse dynamic to the one that you have always experienced in the workplace where you've built a firm that I'm trusting is 
underrepresented people are in positions of importance. And now you're reaching out to bring somebody who goes through his life with privilege, his or her life with privilege and a way of being dominant. And now you're bringing them into this environment. How do you help that process go smoothly? Is it the test of the character of the person who comes in? Or is it the first test of, are they the right fit for Cadet in that they're open to what they need to learn? As an employee or as a client? As an employee. Oh, as an employee. Um, so I'm a people reader. So that's the other part that's very helpful too. Um, we search, we do background checks. We look at folks, we see who they are and we ask questions that are intentional about how they display learning and unlearning um, because someone doesn't need to know everything coming into it. They need to be able to correct their behavior. They need to be able to hold themselves accountable and they need to be able to know that they are going to be in a supportive, autonomous environment that is remote. And if they can't do those things or agree with those things, that's not the right place. And so we are straight to the point. That is fascinating. And I want to keep talking about it, but we need to take a short break. So we'll return to that when we come back. So don't go away. We'll continue honoring Black History Month with my special guest, Dr. Akila Kadeh, the founder of Change Kadeh, consulting firm, Chains to Drive Equity and Belonging in the Workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And my guest this hour is Dr. Akila Kadeh, and she's the founder and CEO of Change Kadeh, a consulting firm which offers a broad array of anti-racism and diversity services, including strategic planning, crisis rebuilding, advising, executive coaching, and facilitation. Akila, welcome back. Thank you. You're welcome. So right before the break, you were sharing with us how you hire and how you go about um, discerning whether somebody is going to be a good fit for your organization. And you shared something that I've never really heard anybody talk about. And in my day job, we talk all about hiring all the time. Um, And you were mentioning that you wanted that you try and look at how people learn and unlearn. Talk to Mm -hmm. me more about that. Totally. So learning something we're all familiar with, if we've been privileged enough to go to kindergarten, to sixth grade, middle school, high school, college, whatever that may be, um, we get that. Like, okay, we're learning things. Unlearning is something that we're not all taught. And that is realizing what you thought was right and true is not, or it's not the complete story. Um, so a wonderful example of that is Columbus Day, right? <laughs> You know, and Christopher, Christopher Columbus, everyone's like, okay, cool. You know, and folks who have Italian heritage are like, yeah, this is like a whole thing. There's parades in certain cities, um, meals that are held. And then, you know, we have whole um, streets named after Columbus. Whole streets. Yeah. Streets and circles and squares, you know, (laughs) (laughs) there's so many things. But then when you realize that Christopher Columbus was part of really horrific things that happened to indigenous folks then, you know, you're like, wait, a, what? That's a moment of unlearning, right? And how that shows up. And so an example of unlearning is like, okay, so it's Columbus Day, but Biden, you know, brought in a new federal holiday, which is Indigenous Peoples Day, which is still Columbus Day. So it's a little weird. But then the person who's unlearning is like, I can't celebrate the oppressed with the oppressor. That doesn't make any sense. So I'm going to call it Indigenous Peoples Day. That's essentially the person we're looking to hire who's willing to go through that sequencing of unlearning and realizing that they have more to learn. And that's how anyone dismantles any type of oppressive structure, white supremacy, systemic problems, whatever that thing may be by the unlearning aspect. So this um, reminds me, I'm an art school person. I went to art school, taught, worked in art school for a very long time. And a process that almost every student goes through is a form of learning and unlearning where they come out of um, high school, say, clearly talented, big fish in the small pond. Um, They've found a way to express their ideas, whether it's through, you know, visual or performing arts. And they come into, and there's a lot more to discuss about what it means to be creative and come into the academy. But anyway, um, the in the process of teaching healthy, um, often physically safer technique, 
as well as how to use tools, materials, and develop a more sophisticated process. Students have to, and it's, it's a big part of the freshman and sophomore experience, let go of the things that they knew that made them feel confident, that gave them their identities. And in the process of learning these new things, stumble. They don't perform as well. Um, their self-esteem can take a hit. They become very vulnerable and fragile during that time because they don't have the same um, pillars holding them up and they have to recreate that for themselves in a new context while getting intense criticism every day. Right. How, and it's one thing when we're doing that in school, we're actually you know paying to do that and there are professionals <laughs> who are trained to help us do that. But it sounds like your consulting firm in a way does that with your clients. Oh yeah. How, when we're trying to learn and unlearn, what are things that we can do to help us with that process and to deal with those moments where we feel unmoored because we don't know where steady ground is and we don't know where it is within ourselves because we're just focusing on how much we don't know? Yeah. So one thing is that we have to role model the behavior we want our clients to have, we meaning myself my team. We have to do that. That's why we ask that question. That's why we hold our team members accountable to that unlearning aspect. Uh, when it comes to our clients, we set expectations. Again, this is a reciprocal relationship here. We are experts of things. We happen to be internationally known for a few things and you are experts in your own culture, right? And your own environment. So we have a reciprocal time to learn and unlearn from each other. We may say, hey, maybe you should message it this way. And they're like, you know what? We're a Slack, Slack worlds. Everything's Slack, Slack, Slack. Okay, well, we're going to figure out how to do it in Slack. <laughs> we're not going to say, no, you have to do it this way because it's not going to work right with their culture. And so we role model that behavior, what they should have. So learning and unlearning is instrumental, what we do. And then being able to put folks in a position to understand that if they're on a journey to do whatever they want in acronym soup, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, accessibility, <laughs> belonging, anti-racism, there's so many letters they can use. Mm -hmm. Whatever that is, and you're on that journey, you have to realize it's never going to end. And so we have to do the same thing with our company. As we bring people in, as people move on, as they come in, we're always changing and evolving. What we're learning and unlearning, we're changing and evolving how we're working with our clients or what we may present in a post or put on um, our website. It's the same thing for clients. And so as we go through these continuous role modeling opportunities, including the other aspect is real time because we also do crisis management, crisis recovery. And that's really how I'm the Olivia Pope of diversity in the workplace. Someone was harmed internally, externally, or both. And we have to go in and do service recovery. How do we fix whatever that harm was? It may be a public message. It may be internal message. It may be both. But that's really where we're role modeling. So we're going to go in to make sure whoever was harmed is in a, a position where they feel supported. But we have to say like, hey, by the way, so I'll give you a little story. Crisis management, N-word was used. Just going to get into it. Happy first day of Black History Month. And it happened uh, with a customer um, working with a customer associate. And this was, this happened uh, in a chat function. And so words were, were there. It was very clear. It wasn't like, what did you say? It was, it was explicit. And the person they were working with uh, I was a black person. And so we were in crisis management recovery mode. I'm with all the C-suite folks. What do we, what do we do? Cause this person's been harmed and it's spread out in the, you know, the culture, the workforce, everyone's talking about it. And so when we go into what to do, someone thought it was a good idea to, to post the, the, the thread and it was good. I needed to see it. Okay. I see the frequency, but they left it up for the entirety of the meeting. But we go in, we come up with a solution, we solve it. We had to follow up in the subsequent week to see how things were going. And this is how I started the meeting. How is that person doing? Okay, good, great, glad they're supported. So let's talk about what happened. Now, I know I'm providing crisis management, but it's also important to note that I'm also a Black person. So that word is also triggering to me. And I could have said something at that time, but I'm here to support you 
in your team. But moving forward, if something like that happens again, put it up for context, we need to see it, but then remove it to prevent any harm. Because I was the only Black person who was part of this discussion. So, and in that moment, they're like, oh, yes, connecting dots. Lots of apologies happened, you know. And so you're modeling it while you're teaching them. Mm-hmm. And you're, it, it's so interesting to see the way that you're both appropriately giving voice to your own need for protection and using that as a teaching tool. So there's a certain, there's an amazing kind of strength and vulnerability that's reflected in that. Um, And I know that another place in your life where that exists is, as you said, you live with a disability. Talk to me about how that's manifesting in your work. First of all, like, how are you doing? How are you navigating it? (laughs) Want to make sure you're well and feeling okay. Um, But also how that's informing your work. Yeah. And so I'm a year into being full-time into my business. I, this is a privileged statement. Um, It's going on our family trip. And this year we happen to be going to um, London and Brussels and Paris. And we were flying to it. Yeah, it was. And also my father is a, he's retired now as a lawyer and a diplomat. So I've had a passport since I was two. And uh, my parents did a a master's in in international business together. Very cute. Um, And so we, we, I'm a twin. So sometimes I say we, uh, I've always been traveling the world. And so it's something that's very exciting and fun, but it's also standard for me. So while I was on this plane flying to London, I was getting flutters in my chest. I'm like, WTF, you've been to London before. What is, you are not excited. (laughs) There's nothing to be excited. And so by the end of the trip, we're in Paris at the Louvre and, uh, and the Egyptian antiquities part. And I had the worst chest pain I have experienced in my entire life. And because I'm someone who believes in spirits, um, I was like, okay, so I guess a mummy is trying to talk to me. Maybe that's like what's happening. And that made sense to me. It doesn't make any sense. But that at the moment, <laughs> I'm like, well, I am a vegetarian. I don't have cardiovascular issues. There's no cardiovascular issues in my family. So it must be someone trying to talk through my body somehow. And I'm just getting the signals all messed up and it's turning into chest pain. I returned to us and then I had, um, more tachycardia. So tachycardia is when you have a hundred beats per more uh, a minute while resting. And you're, it's not supposed that when you're working out great walking, but when you're resting, it's not supposed to be that, high, be that high at all. And I'm a health nerd. I was previously pre-med. I had a heart monitor and I was like, this is not normal. Um, but I'm like, well, maybe I'm tired or dehydrated. And then the next day, talk about being an entrepreneur. I had a meeting with a client and um, I drove to the meeting all of five minutes and I went into like 135 beats per minute driving. I'm like, this is not okay. Pain in my left arm. And I was like, oh, these are heart attack symptoms, but it can't be having a heart attack. Also, this is a really big client. And so I went to the meeting I made an appointment with my doctor, pulled over, made an appointment with my doctor. It was a Friday on that Monday, went to the meeting, got some electrolyte water, got the contract, by the way, it's resulted in well done, lots of money. Thank you. Um, and I was like, okay, well, maybe I just need to rest. Woke up the next day, still chest pain. So I'm like, oh, I probably should call the advice nurse. Um, while I was on the phone, while the advice nurse was looking for an urgent care appointment, I informed her that my left arm went numb. And so she immediately screamed, call 911. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I will find a ride, but I will go to the emergency room. They crossed the street to my neighbor's house and they took me to the emergency room all of three minutes away. And that's because I worked in healthcare too long. And I realized that I was like 30, 30, what am I now? 34 at the time that I would not be admitted to the hospital as a black woman with any type of cardiovascular thing. And the only way to not pay for an ambulance bill is when you're admitted to a hospital. So I preferred to be dropped off. Yep. That's what I get to deal with. Lots to unpack there, but keep mm -hmm, going. mm -hmm. So fast forward, um, I ended up being diagnosed. It took about a year to be diagnosed with coronary artery spasms. So my body thinks it's having a heart attack every single day. So I live with the symptoms of a heart attack. I know. Thank you. 
So about 2% of people just have coronary artery spasms where it's not connected to like a traditional um, coronary disease or heart disease. And so my arteries and my heart just close. They just close, causes chest pain, weakness in my left arm, shortness of breath, and it can cause an actual heart attack. So if you haven't guessed it, I could die at any moment in time um, and then go into a coronary episode. So I always have to carry um, nitroglycerin with me. I always have to know where emergency rooms are, wherever I travel. Um, I can no longer do things in like crowded spaces um, because it would be too hard if something happened for me to get to safety. So like it it changed my life um, immensely, but then I was still having pain in my back and my joints. I'd wake up with swollen joints and I couldn't walk on something and I'd have to use a cane or crutches. And it took more years, but in 2021, I was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which means my body doesn't make enough collagen. And collagen is in everything from your hair, to your eyes, to your muscles, to your joints. It's literally everywhere. And so there's a lot of comorbidities that happen as a result of that but I live in chronic pain. Um, I, most of my pain is in my spine and you kind of need your spine for um, like everything. Yeah. It's kind of central. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the the disability I have. And I um, navigate, I have some other rare disease. I have like three rare diseases, um, which, you know, is no, no fun bragging point, but I guess cool in a way. It's not everyone has it. You special. are unique. <laughs> yeah. And so it's I have also- to navigate so it's interesting that your first reaction, and I don't know how much of this was um, ways that you've learned to understand and live in your own body up till that point, that you were connecting each emotional thing that was odd with an, like each physical thing that was odd was what's the emotional experience causing it, not thinking that these were really significant health problems. Well, I, I didn't have significant health problems. <laughs> right. So, up until that point, why would you think that way? I'm like, yeah, these are totally symptoms of a heart attack, but I'm a vegetarian. Like I, my, you know, my LDLs are beautiful. Like it's, you know, it's fantastic. It it didn't make, it didn't make any sense for that to happen. But once I knew something was wrong with my body, there's a lot of misdiagnoses and there's a lot of emergency room visits where I experience horrific racism. I have PTSD going to emergency rooms so much. So I have to go to the emergency room. I'm better controlled now, at least once a year. So <laughs> I messaged my cardiologist and he's like, yeah, you gotta go to the emergency room. I'll send a note because I always send a note because I'm not white. So I have to have a note um, from a provider. So I'm believed but because I have chest pain or high levels of pain. I'm always viewed as a drug seeker. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 So those of you who can't see me, my mouth is just <laughs> gate open because it's just so horrific to think that this is real. Yeah, and, and so a sign of my privilege that I don't experience this. But this is so normal. You have to have systems with your doctors to avoid this. Oh, totally. And I and and he knows I have PTSD, and so he's like, you know, you need to get there like within an hour. And so he allows me to take my time to emotionally prepare for what I have to like experience. There was actually one time where I avoided it so much I did an Instagram live. <laughs> You're <laughs> kidding me. <laughs> I'm not kidding, but it was like, it's, so it was for Hill House home and they named a dress after me. And so this was like a whole scheduled thing. And so I made it like a whole kind of influencer thing in a way. I didn't announce that I had to go to the emergency room, but after I did post that my dress works well for the emergency room, it's off the shoulder. So the leads and stuff need to put on. It worked. Um, it, it worked. Akila, this it's so amazing that with each story you tell, it's like, oh, while I was getting my PhD, I was also working in this organization and also starting my own firm. While I'm on the way to the emergency room with a life-threatening situation, I'm also posting on Instagram Live. Some would call that like super multitasking. Um, but well, it's, some actually really call it a Virgo, which is what I am. Okay. So yeah. at least we understand why. Um so you're having this experience now. Talk to me about what this means you needed from your colleagues, from your workspace in order to accommodate you and how it's informing how you help other organizations work to make life easier, include disabled per- persons with people who experience disabilities within the organization. Yeah, um, so... I 
didn't share publicly that I had heart stuff going on for a year. Um, but I did tell my clients, I'm like, Hey, because at that time there was an end date because I had like heart infections. I was being treated for inflammation and all this other stuff around my heart. And so it was going to stop. It was going to stop. It was just like, Hey, I can't come to have a meeting with you because, um, something's going on with my heart. So we're going to, we're going to video chat, you know, before zoom was the rage, like of what everyone was doing. Right. <laughs> and so, and, and people are like, you know, we like you. That's totally fine. Not a problem. Um, but when I realized it was going to be my new, a new part of my intersectionality, I did what any American would do, which is post it on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> So I posted on Instagram as a weird thing. And it was like my millionth heart monitor. And um, it was just like my heart monitor and like no makeup. It was just me and saying like, hey, I have this thing. And I'm realizing this thing is going to be with me like forever. And people are like, oh my God, you're so brave. And I was like, what? I just had to tell you, this is now part of my life. I'm not trying to be brave for anyone. I'm not trying to be inspirational. This is just who I am now. I have this heart thing. I can't fully name it, but it's going to be here forever. And um that's when I realized that I was going to be forever changed. And so the, the other side to this is that my primary doctor uh, is, is fantastic. Always believed that something was wrong with me. So my primary doctor and cardiologist believed something was like, okay, we have to do something for you. And, and that is very rare for people. I also want to acknowledge that as a privilege, but she was like, hey, you need an ADA placard because you need to pass out, shortness of breath, you shouldn't be walking far. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and so I, in California, the, the red placard is a temporary placard. And so after like the third or fourth time I was renewing my temporary placard for six months, my primary doctor sat me down and said, Akila, you are disabled you need the blue placard. The blue placard automatically comes to you every two years. And I was like, no, what? I, you wait, weren't, what? you hadn't accepted that this wasn't transient. No, but when we think about what society views someone as disabled, it wasn't me still looking cute, walking around, maybe shortness of breath, maybe sweaty, right. whatever it was. <laughs> I, but still in fabulous me. shoes, right? That, uh, naturally, naturally. I can't wear like the high heels I used to wear, but I still make it work. But that was when I realized like, oh, I have invisible disability. I have this thing that people don't really talk about. So I had to do my own research and go into it and then realize like, wait, wait a minute. I need to speak more about this with my clients as they're saying, because if they like me for other stuff, whether change management or organizational development or DEI stuff, I can bring that part of my intersectionality for also role modeling how they can work with people and realizing they probably have folks in their own environment that have invisible, you know, disability. And then I now have um, two types of, I have invisible disability and, and what people view as traditional disability, because sometimes I walk with a, a cane, my pimp cane, as I like to call it. Um, and so, you know, I'm able to have two different viewpoints of disability, even within the disability community. And so, this all emerged as you already had your own firm? Exactly one year. And I was, I said, I, I used my favorite F word. This doesn't make any sense. I was so <laughs> upset. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Like I finally figured it out of what to do. And now I have to navigate this whole other journey and my life. And I was very, very frustrated. Um, but I realized I'm like, whether I have visible or invisible disability, I have created a company that celebrates it. So I just had semi-major injections, I don't know, 12 days ago. <laughs> and it's a big deal. But I'm able to do these random injections in the middle of the day and not have to take a sick day because we have unlimited time for what we need to do what we need to do with this company. And I can't say I need all the unlimited time to take care of my health and well-being and not have that for my employees. Right. And so we work around it. And so, you know, if I, when I have my major injections or major or semi-major injections, we know the following week, I got to do stuff at home. So I may not be able to walk um, and I may not be able to travel. Right. And all of this stuff is just built in naturally. It's like no big deal. But it, and it sounds like it's no big deal because you built an organization 
on these core values that you thought were important and that also serve you, but they enable everyone else to also be able to navigate the realities of their lives. Yeah. So I have moms on my team and like I have one person who is giving us a child and I'm very excited about that. (gasps) So it's our first change for a baby. Um, But that they get three months of paid leave. And I have the power. It's the right thing to do. Right. And so when they have the moments to take care of the kids or whatever, whatever comes up, we shift and we make it work. And the organization as a whole is working probably because you're retaining really talented people and helping them have a rational life. Oh yeah. I mean, I wish you could come to one of our meetings and someone mentions they have a headache. We will shame them out of the meeting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't do not be here what are you doing for the rest of the day are you meeting with anyone else on the team we're canceling them you need to go rest take whatever you need to take go in a dark room don't be here you know and and it's not typical but it's really what we all should be doing and so my intersectionality of disability allows for that to happen in the workplace Kayla, just one more way. You are such an extraordinary role model. I'm so sorry we're running out of time. Um, Tell us if people want to engage with the firm, learn more about you, um, where should they look? So um, the word change and cadet, my last name, like cadet, C-A-D-E-T, on any platform, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever you want to go. We also have a Patreon account where you can learn. We call it our Change Cadet Action Network. And so you can look that up at Patreon slash Change Cadet. And all of those tools will come up. You are supporting a Black disabled woman and uh, we need the support. Um, You also can go to our website, changecadet.com, and you can learn more about my book that actually comes out one year from today. Um, (laughs) And I'm excited to share that book of the world that talks about a lot of the things that we're talking about today. That's fantastic. You'll have to come back when the book is released. Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, excellent. Akela, thank you so much for joining us and for all the work that you're doing. And thank you all for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Podcast is available 24-7. Thanks, as always, to Kara Pogue, my producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins, and our sound engineer, Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work. Go pour some good into yourselves, people. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.